I am Anthony Fowler. I'm Andy Guess. I'm Will Howell. This is not another politics podcast. We are super fortunate to have Andy Guest joining us for the entire duration of the show today. Viola, well, Viola's not with us. She is spending some time on another continent. And so we thought we would mix things up and to huddle up with Andy Guest from Princeton, who we've had on the show before, to talk about a similar topic involving political communication and media and the consumption of news in light of a whole batch of studies, Andy's, that you just released. I mean, three papers simultaneously in science and another paper, um, oh gosh. In, in nature. In nature. It's what um, you would have guessed. It was like a, like, this was a huge drop of research. Yes, without warning. With a big team. Yeah, huge team. Yeah, you had a huge team, right, um, as part of this. So can you just like walk us in a little bit about how this team was formed? What's the origin story here? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So there there are four papers that came out. I'm co-lead author on two of them and a, and a co-author on all four. And these are planned to be the first of more than a dozen papers as part of a, a larger collaboration between meta researchers and academic researchers and do we have um, to say this, meta by the way i'm gonna i know i'm gonna struggle with this I know. maybe i'll just say at the outset that when i say facebook i mean meta but i'm i don't think i'm gonna be able to keep that up for the entire episode yeah honestly i've, I've had trouble myself the name changed you know in the midst of this project right so it started off as the facebook collaboration then became the meta collaboration i think i think we can we can use the word meta or the, the word facebook and i think people will hopefully get what we're talking about so, okay, so let's talk about the data. Like you you have, there's a descriptive component to these projects. Yeah. And I think we can talk yeah. synthetically across all four papers, right? I mean, there's okay. there's a common project there. And you're, and then and then there's a, a set of experiments that you roll out where you manipulate things um, to see what impact that has on news consumption and attitudes. But let's start with the descriptive component, which is just what kinds of news people are getting. And who are you studying? It's... It's hundreds of millions of people. Like what, describe the, in the descriptive component, what the data are. Yeah, so I'm glad that you made this distinction between descriptive and experimental. So for the descriptive, we were able to look at pretty much all the adults, monthly active users in the US, but in an aggregated form. So we're talking more than 200 million users in the US. Whereas for the experimental studies, we're looking at smaller samples, you know, on the order of 20,000, give or take, per experiment, but there the participants are specifically consenting to join the research and to potentially share data. And so, you know, we have access to more information about these users, although certainly nothing that would be personally um, identifiable. And so the first, these are people who, who what, log in at least once a month, yeah. and you're looking at them over a three-month period in the fall of 2020, Yeah, and looking at what kinds of news they consume and whether or not it comes from what you're calling a like-minded and or a trustworthy source. Well, it's it's slightly different for different papers, but for the political segregation paper, it was about 208 million US-based users who were active, defined as active on the platform and for whom we could kind of predict their, their ideology. There's the concern about the extent to which we're polarized. There's also the concern about the extent to which we are siloed, right? The extent to which yeah. liberals and conservatives are just consuming liberal and conservative media. So, so tell us the top the top 
level finding here when it comes to how siloed we as a country are. Yeah. First, kind of going through some of the results from the, the segregation paper. So this is a descriptive analysis of this U.S. Active, active adult population. One of the main takeaways here is indeed that conservatives and liberals are both seeing and engaging with pretty different sets of, of political news. So posts containing links to political news articles specifically. And whenever we're talking about these kinds of findings, I think it's always good to keep in the back of your head that the, the share of what people actually see on the platform that does constitute political news or, or kind of news broadly understood is, is really low. So, um, you know, we're talking less than 7, 7%. Um, and so when you kind of zoom into that, what we are seeing is indeed quite a high degree of ideological segregation. So the kinds of news that people are seeing and engaging with is, is quite different on both the kind of both the poles of this ideological continuum. On the like-minded paper, which is um, published in, in Nature, that one takes a slightly different approach, which is measuring the extent to which people encounter content that is shared by quote-unquote like-minded sources on their feeds. So here, a like-minded source could be a friend, a page, or a group that is estimated to be on the same side of the ideological spectrum as you. And so there, there's some nuances, nuances to the findings, but you could look at, say, the, the median user, and you see that the median user sees uh, just over half of their content from these like-minded sources. And if you think about, okay, um, is that a lot or is that a little, we can try and get a sense of who are the people who are perhaps the most in a so-called echo chamber. Their one finding is that about just over a fifth of Facebook users get over 75% of their exposures from like-minded sources. Um, so it's not like most people on the platform are getting most uh, of their content on their feeds shared by like-minded sources, but you know it is, a, it is a sizable chunk. And there's a partisan asymmetry here. That's right. Focusing on political news URLs, there seems to be more of them that are exclusively seen by conservatives than there are political news URLs that are exclusively seen by liberals. Can we, I want to, I want to break those up for a second, because those are two different but interesting findings. Yeah. The first one to me doesn't sound bad at all. One fifth of users on Facebook are consuming more than 75% of their news from like-minded sources. Uh, not, sorry, not news. Uh, this is just exposures in general. It could, it could include news, but most of it is probably not news. That doesn't, that does, I don't know, that doesn't sound bad at all. That sounds, that sounds like, oh, not a lot of people. And even 75% isn't a crazy number. That means, okay, that means maybe a quarter of the stuff you consume is coming from the other side. And this is only the worst 20% of America. It sounds like things aren't so bad, which is, this is the point when I would have cited your earlier work and said, you know, Andy <laughs> Guest says these things aren't that bad. And look, lo and behold, these things aren't that bad. Most people are consuming information, post content from, from both ideological sides. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought this up because this was a challenge that I grappled with in my earlier work. Like, how much is like the optimal amount of cross-cutting content that you would want your sort of ideal citizen to encounter online or on social media? And how much is too much? Um, and when people talk about echo chambers, what do they mean? So part of the problem is I don't think there's broad agreement normatively on what these thresholds should be. And when you try to pin people down in terms of the, the public discourse, you know, what are the numbers that would be bad? It's really hard to, to get like a really concrete sense of what people mean. And so when we actually report these empirical estimates 
a lot of the framing, I think, in the, the popular coverage was that, yeah, those you know, echo chambers are, are real, but you're right that it's just as easy to see some of these findings as totally consistent with my previous work, which I did frame as sort of being like, okay, some people are in echo chambers, but most people aren't, and there's a lot more exposure to cross-cutting information than you would think. If you tried to compare these estimates to the estimates that you have from different data sources, like like what just what news are people consuming online on their own, not just on Facebook, how do they look different? Do they look roughly the same? Here here's how I think about it. So my prior shifted a bit. So the level of segregation is higher than I found. But my paper was looking at the, you know, the open web, right? This is looking at what's going on on the Facebook platform in you know, a few months of 2020. Part of that difference could be the time. I think a huge part of the difference, of course, is the fact that what goes on inside of these platforms has been a black box for the most part um, until, until now. And we've always known that there was this sort of missing, big missing piece, um, which was what do people actually encounter and engage with on the platform? And when you think about, well, what is actually different about you know, encountering news on Facebook versus just the open web. Two key ones are the fact that you can get information from groups and you know publishers that only exist on the platform. So, so say pages and groups. One of the findings of the segregation paper is that uh, a big chunk of the segregation can be attributed to pages and groups. And so I think it's a really interesting insight and potentially explains some of that some of that discrepancy. So I want to linger on this for another minute because that, that that's a striking finding that when people are on Facebook, which I assume a lot of what people do on Facebook is share pictures of their children and pets yeah. and and other still you know I don't know vacations and things like that. Uh, they're more mm-hmm. ideologically sorted than when people browse the news on their own on the web. That seems shocking. Two explanations I could think of as to why that's the case are that people just are kind of socially segregated in ideological ways. It just, you know, the people you're friends with, you're not friends with them. You know, you know you're liberal and you're friends with liberals, not because you're all liberal. You're just, you, you all happen to live in a city and be around the same age and share yeah. common interests. But you're not taught, you know, most of, but most of the time you're not, that's not actually polarizing people. They're sharing, you know, pictures of their cats and whatnot. And when you and when those same people go to browse the web, they read sometimes conservative sources, and they're actually more open-minded than you yeah. would think. So that's so that's one explanation. I guess the other explanation is it's something is that there's more bias in the measures using the Facebook study. And talk more about that prediction of political ideology because that that's important yeah. for most, if not all, of the papers, and it's really interesting, right? You're trying to figure out based on what what information you have, what are the political leanings of each person, so that we can then ask things like. Are they reading news from you know like-minded sources or or out-party sources, et cetera? How mm-hmm. do you do that, and what kinds of concerns did you have about about your your ideology scores that were relevant for your studies? Yeah, so the these these are user level ideology predictions using what's called the uh, the civic classifier that was developed internally at Meta. So it's demographics, you know, engagement with political pages. You know, I think there are a number of potential questions or concerns you might have about an approach like this one. One of the more important ones would be uh, in terms of validity. So you get a prediction from zero to one. If I predict that you're a 0.7 today, you know, will I predict that you're a 0.7 tomorrow or 0.7 next week? And it turns out this sort of, you know, week over week reliability is very high. 
And so that's that's one among several indicators we have that these classifications are pointing to something meaningful and and real. So just so just so I'm getting this right, uh, at some point Meta or Facebook has surveyed people and asked them to just self-report their political ideology, some sample of people. Some people, yeah. And then based on that sample, we've got all kinds of other things we can measure from Facebook like who are you friends with and and what and what pages do you engage with and maybe we know your gender and your age and your we have a guess on your race things like that and we're trying to predict for everyone else predict their ideology based on those things i think the most straightforward way to answer this is to note that the ideology classifier is designed to predict a user's self-reported ideology as if we could survey the user population and ask everyone whether they self-identify as politically liberal conservative etc when we look at the performance of our classifiers, precision and recall are both in the 83 to 86% range. Not perfect, but um, in my view, quite good. We also validate this in a number of ways and show that, for example, predictions for individual users are highly correlated from week to week, more so than you would often see in repeated surveys of, politically ver uh, of political variables. You might be concerned about moderates, and here the classifier isn't as good at distinguishing people who lean left or right from moderates. But that's also a well-known issue with survey measures of ideology. So as with surveys, this isn't a perfect method, but it does achieve much greater coverage of the user population, um, so 95% uh, plus, than we'd able to get with any other approach. And so, I mean, I would imagine that Facebook doesn't know a lot about you, but they know they know what, I mean, maybe they do, I mean, maybe they do know a lot about you, but the, the <laughs> things they know the most about you are like, what do you read and what do you click on and who are you friends with and so forth. I don't use Facebook, so I actually, actually it should be the person, <laughs> but I'm, this is what I'm imagining. And so, and so wouldn't you worry that there's this kind of circularity here that, um, that, that might contaminate an estimate of how, how polarized people are and that if I happen to be friends with a lot of liberals, of course, I'm going to be, uh, and I'm going to be reading reading their stories, pages, posts, whatever, and liking their posts and so forth. I'm going to be classified as a liberal, even if I'm not. And that's going to, just based on idiosyncrasies in terms of who sorts with who, it's going to make people look like they're more, more polarized than they really are. So that's, yeah, that's a question I got a lot on some of my own previous research, the circularity question. I don't know how possible it is to totally you know, address that concern to your satisfaction. But one thing I can say is that the meta civic classifier doesn't explicitly use friend information, right? So it's not actually taking into account your, your network connections on the platform. But I think as you're implying, this could happen, this could happen indirectly. Like if you are like geographically sorted or you have interests that are similar to, you know, you know, people in your, in your ideological group. And so I think one implication of that is potentially any kinds of differences or similarities that do exist might be somewhat exaggerated, but these patterns are, are going to be based on, on real differences. If the composition of one's news consumption is informing the estimate of how liberal or conservative somebody is, there's that kind of circularity as well. It then says, well, what do you know? Liberals are consuming liberal media, but that's by definition, because what it means to be in the prediction of whether or not you're liberal is whether or not you're consuming a certain kind of, of media. Yeah. So I guess I would point out a couple of things here. One is that these classifications, for better or for worse, are not based solely on political content or, or engagement with 
say, political groups or pages or, or political links. It's actually everything across the platform that you can engage with. There, there's just trade-offs here, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that sure that we've found sort of the the perfect way of estimating ideology while you know sort of achieving the kinds of coverage that we would want to be able to generalize about the platform. I mean, I guess the the, the check I have in mind is re-estimating all of the ideology scores or estimates, um, but dropping anything involving the consumption of media as informing what those estimates are. Just exclude that. Presumably you have lots of other kinds of information because you want to, again, in those estimates, you're then going to go out and say, okay, I now have an estimate that Andy Guess is here in some ideological spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then I want to see Mm -hmm. what kinds of news coverage that you're consuming and to see whether or not it is balanced or it leans decidedly left or decidedly right. That point is definitely taken. While I can't say that we've done that exact analysis, we we did do a bunch of validation exercises, including you know sort of seeing what other you know what else can we predict using these kinds of kinds of classifications, and it seemed to check out. And also for both the segregation paper and the like-minded paper, you'll see that there are versions of the analysis that both focus on political content or civic content and looking at you know broader categories of content. So I think that's sort of how we try to to address these kinds of concerns. So we can scratch our heads about whether or not the modal or the median mm-hmm. resident in our country is living in a silo. I mean, when you pointed out earlier that the median person is only getting about half their their news and their connections with like-minded sources, and the other half are either neutral or from the opposition, that doesn't send off alarm bells. The thing that sent off the alarm bells in the data are not what's happening in the main, but what's happening on the far right. And this goes to this asymmetry point, this claim that there's a small group, but a discernible group that isn't equivalently represented on the left, a a small but a discernible group on the right of people who are highly sequestered. And also you have these measures of trustworthiness and that they score really low on the trustworthiness of the the news sources that they're consuming. And I hazard to guess, these are also individuals who are much more active on the platform. I'm inclined, if you're right about them, I'm inclined to worry about them. Yeah, so this pattern that you're describing is also something that I found in previous work too. But while we generally found low levels of consumption of untrustworthy content from untrustworthy websites, you know that general pattern of skew and the asymmetry between the left and the right is something that we found there too and, and pointed out. I agree that what we're seeing is convergent evidence that there's a you know politically engaged subgroup of people on the on the far right groups and pages are an important vector of untrustworthy content that they're engaging with so that's consistent with a lot of the contemporaneous reporting that was going on while we were actually conducting these studies and on a large platform even groups that constitute a relatively small share can aggregate up to a meaningful number of people can you say just two words about the trustworthiness piece like how is that defined how do you like this? Because this yeah. goes to more than just whether or not they're 
uh, a news source and an individual or uh, another person and me are aligned politically. It has to do with the, the quality of the content of information being shared. Yeah. So the way that we're defining misinformation here piggybacks off of Meta's repeat offenders policy. And so this was instituted beginning, I believe, in 2018. This is a part of their third-party partnership with fact checkers. So these are part of the larger set of integrity efforts that were put into place following the 2016 election in the US. But basically, you know, you could have a piece of content that is flagged for fact checking. It's found to be false or misleading. Though the way it worked or has worked on the platform is that if a specific publisher, so like say a page, has three pieces of content that are flagged as false, so three strikes, they're flagged as an untrustworthy source and they get actually demoted. So that's an input into say the rank the feed ranking algorithm on Facebook. You know, that source and anything that source published subsequently would be downranked. And so for our own designations of content that is untrustworthy, we looked at posts that had at least two two strikes. Again, just to sort of give um, some background context, the overall proportion of posts on people's feeds that are untrustworthy is is extremely, extremely low. It's about 2.6% of the Facebook feeds in our experimental studies. The, The share is low, but like you said, right, that's um, unevenly distributed um, across the across the user population. So we need to talk about these experiments that were run, wherein you take a set of actions that are designed to, well, they're not designed to affect the downstream content. You have that as an open question, whether or not changing the algorithm that's used to produce the news feed or mm-hmm. artificially depressing the, the number of like-minded shares that are that are put on offer, mm-hmm. what effect that has on content. Can you walk us through, like, wh- what, what were the, the experimental manipulations that were made across these papers? So there were three. One was looking at the, the feed ranking algorithms on Facebook and Instagram. We wanted to look at the impact of replacing the default ranking algorithms with a simple reverse chronological feed just the most recent content would be shown would be shown first. In a second paper, uh, we looked at what happens when you remove reshared content from people's Facebook feeds. So there, you know, we were interested in the impact of features that amplify potentially viral posts. The, the third manipulation is part of this like-minded paper where they uh, took a random subset of the consented users in the study and they reduced the amount of like-minded posts from like-minded sources that they saw in their feeds by about a third. So those were sort of the three, you could call them algorithmic changes that we um, experimentally tested across these papers. There was a shared control group for some of the experiments, um, but no one was getting more than one, but no one was in more than one treatment group. And then the move is to first say, all right, what effect did this have on content? And you have a variety of measures there. What effect is there then on attitudes. And at a very high mm-hmm. level, depending upon the intervention, you see action in the content space and it varies. Sometimes it's about the, the level of engagement or the extent to which you're getting trustworthy news or the extent to which uh, you're getting like-minded information from a like-minded mm-hmm. source. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, the, and, the, and the effects point in different directions depending upon what the nature of the intervention is. But over yeah. and over again, you see just a bunch of no results on attitudes. 
yeah, that's generally, I think, the, the pattern of results. I think a lot of people had theories or predictions or assumptions about what, say, replacing the standard feed ranking with reverse chronological would do. And then we can see, okay, so how do they um, change you know, engagement patterns on, on the platform? So what can we learn from the platform data? And then finally, we can look at the survey data um, because we are collecting survey outcomes from these participants as well. And we can look at potential changes on traditional survey measured variables that you might see in, in other political science research. Can you say just a bit, I mean, you said that these were sizable interventions. I'm just trying to get my head around like the, the magnitude, I guess not the estimate so much, but what is actually directly changing for the people who are logging onto Facebook? You said earlier yeah. that roughly 7% of the stuff that comes online has news content. And then you're looking at people who are getting on, who are, who are engaging at least once a month, right? So you got some of these people are just once a month logging in 7%. And then when you think about the, the marginal effect on content, it's, you know, it's, a sh it's discernible, but it's not upending mm -hmm. their, their feeds. I guess I would worry that what we're really seeing is there are two or three news stories that are different. Uh, at the end of the day, over a three-month period, that's what we're talking about for many, many people. They're seeing two or three stories that they wouldn't otherwise see that have news content. Is that, or am I grossly underestimating what the what well, the, I, I the think, effect the, of the intervention is. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the case that some users are going to experience much more significant changes than than others, and so part of our analysis plan for these papers was to look for potential heterogeneities in the in the treatment effects. And one of the things that we that we hypothesized was that things like inventory size, so like actually the the set of posts that you could potentially see on your feed or the frequency of your past engagement, your past use of the platform. So how much of an active user you were, that these would be really um, important moderators. And so for, for a few things, we see that these moderators are important. But, but you're right that ultimately there's a ceiling on the, the kinds of changes that we do see because of you know, the fact that a lot of people on these platforms, they're not going there for, for politics. And so um, I think whether you, you consider these to be sort of large or small changes, I think might depend on your assessment of that. But even that aside, you know, one of our kind of big immediate findings was just that the time that people spend on these platforms changes as a result of the intervention. So, you know, when we switched people into reverse chronological feeds, they spent about 20% uh, less time on Facebook, about 10% less time on Instagram. I mean, you could flip that around and say, well, you know, that's why these personalized algorithmic feeds exist in the first place is to keep people on the platforms and to keep people engaged. Um, and so you can see that these actually make quite a bit of difference. Yeah, Meta knows what they're doing when they're trying to keep people um, uh, like tuned in and engaged. But here's, but this is important because you then show yeah. That when you relax that, when you drop that algorithm and do the reverse chronological feed instead, uh -huh. the, you see a shift in the content of the news that's presented. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a deep disengagement. What's happening there maybe is, well, now I'm starting to see some things coming online that I don't like or I'm averse to. And so I simply look the other way. And that then when we get to the attitude pieces, my mind isn't changed, which is different from... And here, there's another mm -hmm. paper that we've had on the show. We talked to Josh Kala, where they went out and paid the, the Fox News watchers to, to actually watch the CNN. We want you to mm -hmm. actually consume this for a while. And mm -hmm. then they recover 
some, I don't want to say more robust, but they, they, revi- they, revi- they, they recover estimates in the domain of attitudes, that people's minds appear changed, if only momentarily. I mean, it goes away in short order. But, right, if for a brief moment, when people generally are, you know, tuning in for short periods of time and generally aren't going in to consume news and then see a, cu- a few articles that, you know, don't align with their priors or don't, or don't, don't speak to them, well, what do you mm-hmm. know? There shouldn't be a great surprise that then we don't see any discernible effects on attitudes. Right. So I think there are a couple of pieces of evidence as well that are consistent with that story. So, you know, if you look at the like-minded paper, while the intervention is reducing the proportion of content shared by like-minded sources, engagement engagement with like-minded sources, you know, conditional on encountering it, goes up. So basically, like you're seeing less like-minded content, but then when you do encounter it, you're more likely to engage with it than you would be. So that's sort of maybe consistent with with what you're saying. And we saw something similar as well in this chronofeed experiment when we looked at partisanship of, of news clicks among people who were switched over to the reverse chronological feed. And so there certainly is this disconnect between how much you can sort of change sort of along any kind of dimension that you might be able to control, such as the, the ordering of posts that people are seeing in their feeds. But then once you've done that, people are going to they're going to operate within certain constraints, including confirmation bias and, and prior prior habits. That could be one explanation for why there's sort of a disconnect between uh, some of the significant changes that we see in terms of the mix of content people are seeing in their feeds, and then the um, the attitudes um, that we measure with the, the surveys. So there, that's an interesting distinction. I mean, you could imagine one one research question is something like, I just want to know how much online echo chambers are polarizing the electorate and affecting political outcomes in some way. And it sounds like that's not the kind of question you can really answer with this kind of, with this kind of research. Instead, the question you can answer is, we can tweak this little thing within Facebook, but even if we tweak that little thing within Facebook, people will still more or less find a way to engage with the content they want to engage with. And so the kind of, the kind of first stage effect is pretty low. It, it maybe it, it, it lets Facebook off the hook in some sense, in the sense that you can say, okay, Facebook's algorithm is not per se driving polarization or having a big effect on political outcomes, but, but we still don't know whether or not people, you know, the, what the, the small subset of people who are in online echo chambers, if that is in fact polarizing them, uh, it sounds like maybe we don't have a good way of answering that question because, because these experiments didn't significantly change the extent to which they were able to get and stay in those echo chambers. Am I being unfair? Well, I'm hard pressed to think of a more effective and more powerful lever against the common the common conception of echo chambers than the one that we were able to do in this like-minded experiment. So, you know, if some of the results seem like, well, we did that, but things didn't change that much for a lot of people and the attitudes didn't change so much, that's knowledge that we didn't have before. And certainly is an important piece of evidence worth discussing alongside, you know, the priors of a lot of folks who, who think that you could turn a lever, you know, a lever on one ranking algorithm and, you know, markedly change the levels of polarization in the population. I mean, I think, I don't think what we have found across these papers is really consistent with that. The comparison with the Brockman and Kala paper that Will brought up is interesting because that, 
that is, a, in some ways, it's a much stronger treatment. And I mean, they're paying, yeah. of course, it's, it's, it's much very yeah. artificial. Like, there's no policy lever you could pull on, but they're paying people who watch a lot of CNN, or vice versa, of course, of course, it's the other way around. They're paying people who watch a lot of Fox yeah. News uh, to uh, switch and watch many hours of, of CNN instead. And mm-hmm. even that has no effect on vote choice and modest effects on behaviors. And so, I guess, would it be fair? I mean, I know this is a different kind of thing, but this is not nearly as strong of a treatment as that, although this is a more actionable treatment in the sense that Facebook could change their algorithm to get people to view less like-minded news, but it's a much more modest effect on what you're actually seeing and engaging with. No, I think, okay, that is fair. Um, and I think it's probably probably most fru- fruitful to think about these interventions as testing practical policy interventions that could be implemented um, and that have been or could be the subject of, of policy debate. I think there is that trade-off between doing you know, the cleanest study in which you can manipulate exactly what people are consuming and you know, doing a policy change that um, alters the kinds of content that people are more or less likely to encounter and under what conditions. So I've been trying to wrap my head, like what is the, like, the, the, the kind of the banner headline that comes out of these findings? One banner headline, I suspect some folks at Meta would love for this to be the banner headline, is that, hey, we're not responsible for all the anger and hatred that is uh, coursing through our politics. Because what do you know, if we change the algorithm, you've blamed us for the algorithm. If you've changed us for what messages are lifted up through like-minded sources and not, if we do these things, it doesn't have any discernible downstream impact. Uh, on observed political attitudes. And then I was thinking, and maybe this isn't fair, but I was thinking there's a lot, another kind of concern that's happening about these platforms uh, relates to teen depression. And imagine we do a similar kind of intervention where we randomize in one way or another what comes up onto the feed over a short period of time and that we then don't observe discernible changes in depression among users, particularly among teen users. Would we then want to conclude that, you see, it isn't the social media feeds, it is something out in the larger universe that's responsible? Um, there, there is the study on happiness. I mean, we're, we're a politics podcast, so we won't talk too much about that. But there is this, they paid people to stop using social media and showed that they yeah. became happier. Yes. Right. So here, the, the intervention that then you talk about is, what if we were to shut down entirely Facebook? Right. And then see, all right, where do they get their news? How informed are they? How angry are they? Right. Like that, in some ways, that's the sharp, the sharpest intervention is we're going to. And that's the obvious for obvi- all the obvious reasons not available to you. Right. As well, somebody who's entering stay the partnership tuned. with All them. I can say is stay tuned. More okay. papers to come. Okay. More papers to come. Okay. But do you see the, the larger concern is like, what is like, what is the kind of what's really at stake in a deep way? I think. Part of this might be a question about whether we want to presume an absence of effects or, or not. So maybe it's a question about the appropriate standard of evidence that, that we you know, typically bring to social science questions, or if you know, some of these issues are matters of such public concern, you know, we don't want to assume that the, the effect is zero unless proven otherwise in a gold standard, gold standard well-powered, replicable RCT. So I think some, but not all of what you're talking about can be sort of mapped onto this question about the, the risks for 
you know, the, the risk we're willing to, tr- we're willing to trade off here and the, the appropriate standard of evidence. Another part of this is simply that we are studying these questions 15 years into the development of, of social media in the United States. You know, there's potentially been a co-evolution of a lot of these phenomena, right? So the integration of social media logic into our politics increases in affective polarization, et cetera, and we can't turn back the clock. And so, you know, ultimately, there's always going to be that uncertainty about the studies that we didn't or couldn't do while these things were perhaps more more fluid. Those are those are incomplete answers, but I, but I definitely but I definitely take your take your point. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world through research and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago podcast network. Say a bit more about what it means to work with Meta, to study Meta. I mean, I get the need to have collaborators within the organization just in order to get a hold of the data and in order to, 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 to manage the, the, the process. But there are 25, 30 authors on here, over half of whom are employees or were employees of Meta. And you're, you're studying a set of questions that are very much in the news and thinking about the effect that Meta has had on our politics with a lot of people raising lots of concerns. So how, how do you think about this like as a, as a challenge? I mean, there, there, there's the operation, the logistics that you need. You need support within the organization. But there also is um, a, lot of, a lot of challenges and how, how questions are asked and how the team is formed. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, I mean, just from my perspective as a political scientist, a lot of the people that I was working with, both within Meta and outside of Meta, are also political scientists, you know, some of whom, you know, either have or have had academic affiliations. These teams comprise people who are interested in social media and politics, have been studying the relationship between the two for years, aside from whether or not they, you know, currently work at at Meta. And so there's a sort of disciplinary layer on top of everything. And in addition to political scientists, of course, there's economists, um, communication scholars, and people from other fields as well. So to get at the other important part of your question, you know, how do we think about the fact that we are studying, or we have this mandate in a way of studying um, the effects of these platforms, Facebook and Instagram, on political outcomes, but we're also working with people within this company, uh, Meta. How do we sort of make that collaboration work, you know, not only from the practical perspective, but in order to sort of preserve the integrity of the process? The solutions that we came up with, um, I mean, we did a number of things. So first, there are lead authors who are academic researchers not affiliated with Meta. You know, I was one of these people. Those people were given what is called control rights, meaning that if at any point there was a disagreement that arose about interpretation or really any other aspect of the research, then the academics would have the final say. Another was that we pre-registered all of our studies and our research designs and our measures before we ever um, 
implemented our experiments or started collecting data. We also had an independent reporter, so Mike Wagner at UW-Madison, whose mandate was to observe the research as it was proceeding. Uh, you know, he could sit in on meetings, he could interview researchers, he could talk to anyone involved with the project or not, and sort of come to his own conclusions about the process. And so he wrote up an essay that was published alongside these articles in, in Science. And so we had a number of, of provisions of this kind, which were designed to maximize the transparency and the credibility of, of the research. Can you just say more about how these projects came to be? So in the, at least in the Nature paper, there's a list of competing interests, and it looks like almost all authors have at least some kind of pre-existing relationship with Meta, either as an employee or just as a consultant or something like that. So, so all of you had some connection with Meta. How, how did these projects come about? Did, were you approaching them and saying, hey, what about this? Or was this tied to the work you were doing with them? Like, hey, I'll do some consulting work with you in exchange for the opportunity to do experiments. I, can you, yeah, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I can tell you, so I can tell you what it was like from my point of view, you know, which is not, you know, the person who d designed this project or, or initiated this project from the beginning. And so from my perspective, I'm someone who has been studying uh, topics in the area of social media and politics for a while, both involving data from Facebook uh, slash Meta um, and other platforms like like Twitter. And in the course of that, you know, I have I've gotten research grants uh, from from Facebook that were tailored to study specific questions. So these are pretty common in this field. So you apply for a grant called unrestricted. So basically, as long as this question is considered interesting, they're willing to you know support your data collection. And once you get it, they can't tell you anything about what you do with that with that grant money. I've gotten that, and I think a lot of people who are in the space are in a similar position, right? You are trying to interest people who are funding research in the space that includes foundations, that includes uh, companies that are trying to engage in various integrity efforts themselves. Then for, so for these particular projects, yeah, what, yeah, do you have a sense? I maybe maybe you weren't there for those early conversations, but was it was it Meta coming to the researchers saying we'd like you to do these experiments, or vice versa, or any I don't know somewhere in between. Yeah. So, so again, sort of in the, let's say one to two years before this, this started happening, you know, I had been involved in very informal discussions with folks on various teams within Meta trying to make the pitch. The holy grail for research on social media and politics would be to be able to conduct experiments on the platform themselves with real users. And this would sort of take us a step further than you know, the state of the art at the time, which was basically to do either observational research, you know, with scraped data or whatever kinds of data you could get your hands on, or to do relatively artificial experiments that were done either in a lab or in a, in a survey context. Fast forward probably some number of months, what I came to learn was that there are a number of people within Meta itself that were, you know, having similar conversations that when that were pushing similar goals. And so I think you had, you know, various folks within the company who wanted to see this happen. And you had various researchers who were not in the company who wanted to see this happen. I think we're lingering on this point in part because it was an extraordinary undertaking. And we might want to think about this as a model for going forward. If I could put it in the most sort of pointed way in my own mind is that if you wanted to study the efficacy of a drug, you wouldn't want to enter into an agreement with Pfizer, even though Pfizer has real academics or real scientists who also have an interest in evaluating the efficacy of the drug and may have knowledge about the 
production of the drug that would be valuable to an outside team. And I guess I wonder, I mean, if you could think capaciously about what the optimal arrangement would be, wouldn't the optimal arrangement be something like the metas of the world invite people like yourself who are outside academics with an interest in substantive questions to simply get a hold of the data and ask questions of their own making and evaluate them at their own pace and as they so choose. That it, and it wouldn't require entering into a formal and direct agreement with employees of the organization. That they might be available to you know, supply data and answer questions, but that there would be even greater separation. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the drug trial example, because this is sort of how I've thought about it in my own mind. So if you think about how drug trials work, usually the, the studies themselves are being funded by the, the companies that produce the drug. But there's a very strict regulatory regime, right, that institutes all sorts of rules about pre-registration, publication of results, when studies have to be halted for various reasons, funding, conflicts of interest. This is just me speaking, but the way that I have thought about this project and the way it's been organized is that we would like to institute some of the same kinds of safeguards as are present in drug trials, because I think there are some of the same concerns about integrity. The difference, of course, is that we don't really have, we don't have the FDA, at least in the United States. We don't have the kind of regulatory authority to impose these kinds of rules. And so one way to think about what we were doing was we were trying to kind of create a voluntary analog to sort of get at the same get at the same goal. So that's not to say that I think that's like how it should be done or will be done in, in the future. There, there are lots of regulatory efforts going on around the world to try and create a version of the FDA for social media, which would encompass, uh, among other things, researcher access to to data and, and facilitating uh, a research of various kinds. And a number of people on the team of this project have been very heavily involved in those efforts, uh, for example, in the in the EU. If you ask me, I see that as the direction that we should be going sort of as a field. But if the question was, you know, how do we answer basic questions about the role of Facebook and Instagram in the 2020 election on outcomes, including, you know, political participation and, and polarization, you know, we weren't going to get there in terms of this kind of regulatory framework. And so yeah, it didn't we exist. had to sort of, so you had to be, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but that had that's to be willing to go along. They, right? Yes. And to share yes. the data. And so a set of conditions had to be in place for the company to also agree, right? So this had to be voluntary on both sides. And so Meta had to agree to to go to go along with it. And and maybe, I mean, I don't know if this is something that um the, the listeners have you know have have come across, you know, as far as I know, just from reading some of the, the news coverage of our papers, Meta has specifically ruled out doing this again in twenty twenty four. Which maybe illustrates your point, right? That it's that it is voluntary, and it was actually news to me when I when I read it. So it just just goes to show that, like, uh, I, you know, I'm I'm in the dark about plenty of things too, even as a participant in this in this project. Right, the hand that giveth also takes away. <laughs> right. Can can I push you, Andy, to like, yeah, say. What you think is, if you had to, I mean, you're drawing from these findings, what is something that approximates a bottom line? The, the, obviously more research, obviously things are contingent, obvious, right? Yes, yes, yes. But 
what's the updating at a kind of a core level you've done and you're thinking about this space um, and how it interacts with our politics? Is this Andy's bottom line? This might be Andy's bottom line. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. So I'll tell you my, my takeaway is that social media algorithms are powerful. That can change, for example, my knowledge about the world. So one of the findings we didn't talk about was that removing reshare content from people's feeds actually has an effect on your ability to recall correctly events that recently happened in the news, right? So there can be kind of real changes on your beliefs that can happen as a result of these algorithmic changes. But for the most part, when we look off the platform, so when we try to measure any kind of outcomes that take us outside of the platform into the offline world, you know, we generally find effects that are indistinguishable from zero. So I think this divergence is, for me, the core, the core takeaway. So, you know, the design of these social platforms, the particular set of features, the kinds of things that a lot of people are, are interested in changing, these can measurably change what happens on those platforms, including what people say about politics or even engage with about politics on these platforms. But, you know, once you take into account the fuller range of people's offline lives, we're not pushing the needle much in terms of what people are doing once they go into the ballot box or, you know, what they tell um, an interviewer um, in the context of a survey. Anthony, do you want to offer a bottom line? I think I have several. Um, and and I, maybe that means that you can respond to me if you want to. But I do. I have several I have several bottom lines. I think this is really interesting. I mean, first, thanks, Andy, for doing this. This is fun. This is an unusual episode. And this is, I mean, this is a cool enterprise. This is a special thing that, that, that all of you did in the sense that you got access to data that academics would normally not have access to. You pulled off an experiment that academics would normally not be able to pull off on a very important, on several very important platforms that affect many hundreds of millions of people. So, and you're, 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 you're able to answer questions that we, uh, that we weren't able to answer before. So I think all of that's really cool and you should be commended for this really, really heroic achievement. Um, and I'm eager to see, the, you know, the, the other papers that are going to come out from this. I do want to, I mean, I wanted to just, just, just put a pin in the, in the question of, you know, how much trust should we have in for-profit companies to do research that directly affects their bottom line. And so I, I know I know you and I know a lot of the other researchers involved in this, and I believe that you were generally mo- you were motivated to do good science, and this was a cool scientific opportunity. But at the same time, Facebook probably limited what you could do, what data you had access to, what, what interventions you could conduct, and so forth. And so that's just a, that's just a thing that's lingering in my head, which is, you know, how much, you know, how much should we trust Meta to be uh, honest researchers when the research topic is meta you know that's so that's so that's just something that's kind of lingering around in my head not to say that you did anything wrong in that space but that's just that's Mm -hmm. just something that's bothering me these are although the experimental interventions are really cool and something we couldn't obviously done without this partnership they are modest treatments insofar as they're they're modestly changing what people see when they show up on facebook they're relatively short term and so they don't speak to some of the really long-term pressing questions that people have in their minds, like what are the effects of 10 years of repeated use of social media on society? And, and you know, and we, we talked about depression, we talked about politics and maybe other things as well. Um, so there are lots of things that I think the research doesn't answer. That's, of course, that's true for any, for any piece of research, but that's also just kind of a lingering question in my mind, which is, um, although these are cool, unprecedented experiments, I don't, I don't know if they really answer the, the, the most pressing questions we had, like to what extent 
you know, is social media in the kind of in equilibrium in the long term really having an effect on our politics? And then the last thing, the last thing I want to say is that to some extent, I kind of want to reject the premise for the entire enterprise in, so, in a few different ways. One is that I think people aren't that polarized. You know, I think, I think a lot of the motivation for these kinds of studies is, oh my gosh, there's so much polarization. What do we do about it? But it's just not true. People aren't that polarized. And I think that's somewhat consistent with a lot of your results in the study is it turns out on Facebook, people aren't that polarized either. And so I kind of want to reject that premise. Of course, people say and do things that we disagree with. And some of that's online and some of that's in real life. And is that a problem? No, I think we want to live in like a free liberal society where people are saying and doing things that we disagree with. And so I also kind of reject that premise. Like I just don't accept that this is a huge problem that there are these people online and they're, they're saying stuff and doing stuff that I don't like. Like that's, you know, I mean, that, that's true, but I don't, think that, I don't think that's something that we necessarily should be doing anything about. That's part of living in a free and open society. And I think the whole idea of we're going to do experiments to decide how we should regulate social media and maybe decide what's outlawed and so forth. Again, I, I kind of want to reject that premise as well, because, I mean, just imagine if, you know, centuries ago, there was somebody saying, look, there's all these problems with the printing press. People are believing all these things that I don't like. Some of them are untrue. And maybe it's causing polarization. Even if it is true, the printing press probably did have all kinds of short-term bad effects. I think all of us would say that would be a huge mistake to be regulating the printing press and, 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 and banning things and, you know, so forth. So I, anyway, so, and I think mm -hmm. even if these results had turned out to be much worse than they are, I still would want to reject the impulse to say, okay, we should be, we should be preventing people from sharing things that we don't like on Facebook because that's just that's just part of life. Okay, I, I apologize. That was a lot. And you can respond to that if you want to because there was a lot there. But but it, this, was, this was fun doing this, Andy. Thanks again. No, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, thanks for, for engaging with me. And my view is that there is broad interest both from the public and from the scholarly community on the impact of social media in general as well as key aspects of particular platforms on individuals and society. These questions are motivated in some cases by prior theory and in some cases by debates on specific policy alternatives. As a proponent of evidence-based policy, I think it's a good thing to conduct rig rigorous research on these questions. I would rather have an informed debate about these issues than an uninformed debate. And to be clear, this debate has often been underinformed. A big part of the reason for that has been that knowledge about users' experiences and activities on social media covering the vast majority of the population has been locked up as proprietary data of corporations. At least in the short term, efforts like our project have sought to directly address that problem. Finally, I don't think we should think of these four studies as the final word on anything. Research is cumulative, and the solid evidence base in this area is still relatively thin. So we need to encourage more of these cooperative efforts, not only with Meta, but with other tech companies and in other regions of the world. I don't mean to say that I think we've resolved any of the debates, but I do think our findings can help anchor some of the discussions going forward. Will, what's your bottom line? Well, I want to make, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to make two possible pleas, because this is an ongoing project, things to pay attention to as you go mm -hmm. forward that I, I'm sort of struck by it. I'm, I'm just eager to hear more about. Before saying them, I'll say, in some ways, the most extraordinary thing is that these papers even exist, right? 25 co-authors, like that, I mean, if my priors would be, we're going to get 25 co-authors and they're going to be in different industries and different disciplines and different universities. And we're going to write papers. Like, no, you're not. You're going to yell at each other and argue for months and months and months. And it's and then half the team is going to drop off and it's going to all fall apart. That would be my priors about what was likely to happen. And so, holy smokes, mm -hmm. um, that that the, the machinery seems to be um, uh, working is extraordinary. Two appeals. 
One is most of the effects that you present are you know, average treatment effects across the entire population. That population that you've shown a light on, in particular about what's happening on the far right, about which there's a lot of interest in the broader population. And to be able to see, all right, how do they in particular, or how do people on the far left in particular, the ones who are producing the most amount of um, content and whose, and whose views um, linger at the extreme, even recognizing Anthony's point, which I wholly agree with, is that most people don't reside at those extremes. But there they are. Those people do exist. How do these experimental interventions um, affect them in particular? Would love to hear more. The other thing is, and this may not be, there may not be space in the context of these kinds of articles, but should you turn to a book to be encouraging us, your readers, to think carefully about what the policy stakes are involved with any particular intervention. Um, so Anthony, you were concerned about like the idea, well, should we shut it all off? Like that would be horrible and problematic for a bunch of reasons, but that's not the only policy intervention that one could imagine. Or building an FDA isn't the only, for social media, isn't the only policy intervention. It could be a set of uh, rules and norms and expectations about the data being made, being made broadly available um, and de-identified in, de in, in certain well-specified ways so that more people can get their hands on it. I don't, I'm, I don't know. We could think about a whole host of learning that might inform policy going forward when there's a massive demand for a policy response. So what is the responsible policy response that should flow from the findings that you guys um, lift up? Hearing more about that from you all in the context of, mm -hmm. um, if not the individual papers, a book that you, are, that you write or separate essays would be terrific. It's obviously um, a, a lively topic. I'm not, we're not at all surprised that you're getting lots and lots of attention for this. And and you've stayed with us for a long time for this conversation. Immensely grateful, Andy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and really a point super well well taken. I agree that there's a lot more um, that we could say about the specific policy stakes and ramifications of these studies. And on your first point um, about you know really focusing on these subgroups, um, I would say again, stay tuned. Um, there's there's going to be there's going to be papers that. Um, that focus specifically on on different um, subsets of the user population, and and I completely agree that um, this is a space where um, average differences are are not always um, the the whole or even most of of the interesting story of what's going on. So next go round, we've had you once where as a regular guest. Now we brought you on for the whole show. The next time we'll just put a microphone in front of you, and. And we'll like just <laughs> That's a very scary story. thought. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodup. Thanks for listening. <laughs>